Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for Scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's Word and apply His message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today it's part one of the Gospel of John, chapter 15. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Hi, everybody. Welcome back for our discussion of John chapter 15. We're going to talk wine tonight. I wish I could open a bottle and pour you all a glass. The very first wine in the Bible was with Noah. And after being on a boat with his family, 40 days and 40 nights, first thing he did was begin to plant a vineyard after he sacrificed and thanked the Lord. He planted a vineyard, and then he drank the wine. He's the first one in the Bible to become drunk. And it's a misuse of wine. We don't know if he knew or not, but he lie uncovered inside his tent, and Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, which we know is a Hebrew idiom for maternal incest because immediately when Noah wakes up, he curses Ham. He says, when Noah woke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. And Noah said, cursed be Cana, lowest of slaves, shall he be to his brothers. So what we see there is that the water of the flood didn't wash away the fallen, human, sinful nature of man. Now Moses goes out and surveys the promised land. And they haven't made it there yet, and he can see it across the way, and he's going to send out 12 spies. The Lord says, send one from each tribe of Israel into Cana. So he does that. They're going to go spy out the promised land and see what's there. And what they found were these huge, ginormous grapes. They were so big that it took two men to carry them back on a pole. Huge, huge, huge grapes. So what in the world (laughs) is living there that's going to eat these huge grapes? And it was a land flowing with milk and honey, but the people who lived there were so big and so strong and so scary, and the cities were fortified and large, and they discovered that they were the descendants of Anak and Amalek and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites and the Canaanites. Remember them? They're all the scary giants. And Caleb said to Moses, he quieted the people, he said, we can do it. Let's go up at once and occupy it. We can overcome it. He knew God was on their side. He and Joshua were the only two that said, let's go. But the other 10 said, oh, Oh, no, they are stronger than us. They gave a very unfavorable report and they said, these giants are going to devour us. They're of great size. And they said, we're like grasshoppers compared to them. So it was the land of the giant grapes and the land of the giants. And the early church fathers said it was symbolic of the seven deadly sins, the giant of sin, because even though they had crossed through the sea, through the Red Sea, the water had not washed away the sinful nature of fallen humanity. So when they settle in the promised land, it gets apportioned by tribes. There were 12 tribes of Israel. And if you remember in our study of Genesis, we used to play this game, button, button, who has the button? And we were trying to figure out blessing, blessing, who has the blessing, because you can trace the blessing all the way through the Bible. The oldest son in Genesis was supposed to get the blessing and the birthright. Remember that? But many times in the Bible, it didn't work out that way. More than not, like younger Abel got the blessing over older Cain, and younger Isaac got the blessing over older Ishmael, and younger Jacob got the blessing over older Esau, and younger Perez got the blessing over older Zerah. Remember that? There were only three 
oldest sons, the divine number, only three oldest sons who actually got the blessing in the Old Testament. One was Noah, and then his oldest son, Shem, and then Abram. Abram was blessed by Melchizedek, who some scholars suspect to be Shem. Now, how does Jesus then, 2,000 years later, get the blessing and the birthright? Through the vine. And that's what we're studying tonight. And it's going to blow your socks off. Jesus is the Father's ultimate blessing. And Jesus is the Father's ultimate birthright. And it's through him, with him, and in him that we are going to get both the blessing, the Father's blessing, and the inheritance. And the blessing is meant to reverse the curse. And what's the curse? The curse of sin and death. And the birthright is needed to inherit a double portion, a fullness of the inheritance. So blessing, blessing, who has the blessing? Which of Jacob's 12 sons got the father's birthright and the father's blessing? Well, Reuben was supposed to get it. He was the first. But you're as unstable as water. You shall no longer excel. This is on Jacob's deathbed. He says, Reuben, it's not you. You went up into your father's bed. You defiled it. So he had the same problem that Ham had. And you defiled my couch. You're not getting the blessing. The next two sons, Simeon and Levi, and Jacob said on his deathbed, you're weapons of violence. May I never come into their council. May I not be joined to their company, for in their anger they killed men. Remember when their sister Dinah was raped and they wiped out the whole city of Shechem? Jacob says, cursed be their anger. I will divide them in Jacob. I will scatter them in Israel. So they don't get the blessing. And that Levitical priesthood from Levi only lasted till 70 AD, and it's gone now. Judah, son number four. He's son number four. That's the universal number, the four ordinals, north, south, east, west. This sounds like a universal blessing. This could be hopeful. Leah, the unloved wife, has Judah. And she says, now I'll just praise the Lord. That's what Judah means. Now I will just praise the Lord. And Judah's the one who gets the blessing. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow before you. Judah is a lion's whelp from the prey, my son. You have gone up. He crouches down. He stretches out like a lion, like a lioness. Who dares rouse Judah? Judah gets the universal blessing of Jacob, son number four. And then it says, the scepter will not part from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. The obedience of the people is Judah's. Binding his foal to the grapevine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth are whiter than milk. That's bridegroom talk like in the Song of Solomon. But this Judah is a vine. Okay, remember that. Judah is a vine. That's important. So who got the blessing? Judah. Now, who got the birthright of these children of Jacob? Who got the birthright? The birthright always gets an inherited double portion of land. And that's a big deal, especially in the promised land, to get a double portion. Now, right before Jacob died, he called Joseph unto himself and Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Remember that? And Joseph said, here, here they are, Dad. He was calling for his grandsons. And Jacob goes to bless them, and he goes like this. And he crosses his hand. Joseph said, no, 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 Dad. That's not the, that's the younger one. That's not the... And, and Jacob said, no, I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. The father refused. I know my son. I know he will become a great people. He will also be great. But however, his younger brother shall be greater than he and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. So 
He put Ephraim before Manasseh, and then Israel said to Joseph, and listen to this, behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and bring you, Joseph, back to the land of your fathers. I give you one portion more than your brothers. Joseph got the double portion, and he's going back to Egypt, so the double portion is given to his two sons. Joseph gets the birthright. Judah gets the blessing. And that's where it leaves off. First Chronicles confirms that. The sons of Reuben defiled his father's couch, so his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph. Now, before he dies, Jacob says, Joseph is a fruitful vine. Of all 12 boys, only two are called a vine, Judah and Joseph. Joseph is a fruitful vine, a fruitful vine near a spring whose branches climb over the wall. And Joseph was a fruitful vine, a very fruitful vine. And Joseph's body will be taken back to the land of his fathers when he dies. His bones are carried back, and they are buried there in the promised land. So just remember this. Judah and Joseph get the blessing and the birthright, and they're the only two that have a vine language in their blessing from Jacob. Judah has the blessing. Jesus hails from Judah. And in his genealogy in Matthew and Luke, we know that he is a descendant from the line of Judah. And that is confirmed in the book of Hebrews, where it says it's clear that our Lord Jesus Christ descended from Judah. Joseph had the birthright. And Joseph is a clear typology of Jesus, probably one of the clearest in the Old Testament. Joseph is a fruitful vine. And so Judah is a vine. Joseph is a vine. And Jesus tonight says, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. (laughs) And in the promised land, Joseph's sons got two portions, the double inheritance. Okay, so then we go through the time of the judges. Then we get to the time of the kings, the time of the kings in Israel. And I want to go there because at that time, after Saul and then David, the greatest king of all Israel, and then his son Solomon, Israel was a united kingdom. They were very thriving, powerful. So Judah and Israel lived in safety, every man under his vine. It was a time of prosperity. Every man had his own grapevine. Every man had his own fig tree from Dan to Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. This was a fabulous time for Israel. And then after. Solomon, the kingdom became divided. And they will always wish for that time when they had their own fig tree and their own grapevine. And and that meant prosperous and that meant abundance and that meant fruitfulness and that meant they were blessed by God. Plentiful grapes would always remind the Israelites of the coming redemption of the land of Israel that once again, when it would produce fruit in abundance, when Messiah comes. And the prophets would tell them, each of them, again, when Messiah comes, each man will sit under his own vine and have his, be sitting under his own fig tree. And Zechariah says it again, to sit under his own vine and to sit under his own fig tree. We know Jesus saw Nathaniel sitting under the fig tree. Now, in Isaiah 5, we have the song of the unfruitful vineyard. God always thought of Israel as a vine, a precious vine that he planted. Some of the imagery is husband-wife marriage imagery, but tonight it's vine imagery. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning my vineyard, says the Lord. My beloved had a vineyard He on a very fertile hill. He dug it. He cleared it of stones. He planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower right in the middle of it, and he hewed out a wine vat. So God uses this imagery that Israel is his faithful vine. He's planted her. 
And Israel identified itself as being God's choicest vine. And so in their artwork, in their mosaics on the floor, you'll see grapevines. And grapevines are everywhere. Grapevines on the money. They're a fruitful vine minted on the temple. There was a beautiful golden vine that went all the way around. And at the time of Herod, there was a golden grapevine made that was over $12 million of worth. The Mishnah records it. Josephus records it. It was a golden vine with grape clusters. They marveled at the size and the artistry. Rittmeyer has made a sample of what that would have looked like. It was huge. It's, the Midot says it was a golden vine that stood over the entrance to the sanctuary. It was trained over the post. And whoever gave a leaf or a berry or a cluster as a free will offering, he brought it and the priest would climb up on a ladder and hang it up. And that would be like a capital campaign. You know, if you want to donate a grape, you know, that would be $6 million. Yeah. And so they adorned the temple at Herod's time with the grapevine because Israel was a grapevine. So they made this beautiful $12 million golden grapevine completely overlaid with gold. Josephus says that it was as tall as a man. One grape cluster was as tall as a man, six feet grape clusters. And this vine was so famous, even Tactus, the Roman historian, recorded it. A golden vine was found in the Hebrew temple. So Israel self-identified as God's faithful vine. And to God, this was a vine that would spread throughout the entire world. Now, if you've had vines in your grass, like Creeping Charlie, you know how they grow, or those wild strawberry ones, and they're really hard to get out, and you're pulling and pulling, and uh, vines go. And so when God planted this beautiful, fruitful vine, he wanted it to spread throughout the entire world, so all the world would know. And as vines do, they have these tendrils, and they seek, and they keep going, and they keep going, and they keep going, and they keep going. And if Israel would be a well-kept vine with her husbandman, God, the husbandman is the vine dresser or the gardener or the farmer. If Israel, the vine, would bear the fruit of holiness, then all the people in the world would know the one true God of Israel by the fruit by the fruit of God's vineyard. And they would spread throughout the whole world and and all the nations would come under God's canopy and God's vineyard. And so God writes this song, except there's a problem. God expected that the vine of Israel would yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes or rotten grapes. And if you've ever seen a wild grape bush, it's a lot different than a beautiful manicured one. Grapes take much care. Now the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the people of Judah judge between me and my vineyard, says the Lord. What more was there for me to do for my vineyard that I have not done? When I expected it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild, sour, rotten grapes? He's asking the people. And now I'll tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I'm going to remove its hedge. I'm going to devour it. I'm going to break down the wall, trample it down, make it a waste. It's not going to be pruned or hoed. It's going to be overgrown with briars and thorns and thistles. And I'm going to say, no rain. That's what he's going to do. He's had it with this vine, this wild, unruly vine. So more often in the Old Testament, we see Israel being referred to as a degenerate vine, a wild vine, an unruly vine. And instead of being a well-ordered, fruitful, beautiful orchard that bears the fruit of the Lord, Israel was wilting on the vine. And she was diseased and decaying. And she was producing very little, puny, sour fruit that was wild and inconsistent. And she was overgrown. If you move into a property that has overgrown grapevines in the backyard, good luck. I hope you have hours and days and months to get it up to speed because that's what it's going to take. They become unruly, unproductive. They are in severe need of pruning or nourishment. And they get hard and brittle and unkept. (laughs) 
And Israel was dying on the vine. That's what Israel was. In Proverbs, it says, I passed by the field of one who was lazy, by the vineyard of a stupid person. And see, it was all overgrown with thorns and thistles and nettles, and the stone wall was broken down. The Israelites did not respect a vineyard that was unkept. Why have you broken down its hedge walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it. All that move on the field feed from it. Turn again, O Lord God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted. They would cry out to the Lord. Oh, please groom us. Please prune us. Please bring us back to that beautiful vine that we once were. Jeremiah says, I planted you a choice vine, a completely faithful seed, and now you've turned yourself against me into a degenerate shoot of a foreign vine. We saw that in Ezekiel, the harlot. Always, always going away from the Lord in a different direction. Although you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your iniquity is before me. So it looks like Israel is in need of a new vine. And Jesus tonight says, I am the true vine. And in Genesis 49, in Jacob's blessing to Judah, his last blessing, he says, tie the foal to the vine, the grapevine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. Jesus rode a donkey's colt into Jerusalem. He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. A little foreshadowing there. And in Revelation, my Lord, you know, he said to me, these are the ones who have come out of great tribulation. They have washed their robes. They have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So let's talk a little bit about establishing a vineyard. Vineyards were off always on a hill, located on a hill. Well, the true vineyard, the true vine, Jesus Christ, will be on a hill named Calvary. And his final vineyard wine tasting will come immediately before his kingdom comes. He says, I will not eat from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom comes. And they lift a hyssop up to his mouth, and it's sour wine. Because all Israel is producing at this time is wild, sour grapes. But he has new covenant wine to give. He has new creation wine that he told us about in John chapter 2 at Cana. And it was the seventh day. We were day counters. And on the seventh day, they went to a wedding. And it was a new creation at Cana. And it was the best wine they'd ever tasted. And the wine was flowing by the gallons. And the steward said, everyone serves the good wine first and the inferior wine after all the guests are drunk. But you, you have kept the good wine until now. And yes, he did. You have kept, Lord Jesus, the good wine until now. And the old covenant, it was circumcision on the eighth day. That was the sign of the old covenant. In the new covenant, it'll be baptism on the eighth day or any day thereafter that you come forward to be incorporated into the vine, a new covenant in his blood, and all are welcome to drink of him and abide in him. And Jesus, the true bridegroom, has kept the good wine until now for us, and it's universal, north, south, east, west, like Judah, it's for all, all directions. Jesus is this new true vine. And he offers the best wine for all humanity, for all time. And all are invited to this new wedding feast of the Lamb of God. And the stain of your iniquity is cleaned by his blood, by this new wine. He wants to wash our baptismal garments with this grape, with his own blood. He wants to be crushed for us. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Happy are those who are called to the banquet of the Lamb to feast on his flesh, the blood, and to drink his blood, his wine. So let's talk a little bit about wine. 
In the U.S., in 2005, we, just United States, consumed 913 million gallons of wine. We like it. (laughs) I wish I had a few bottles and we could uncork them right now and, and all have a glass while we're listening. But wine production is big, big business. It always has been. It was back in Bible times. It was a big business. In the time of Jesus, during the days of antiquity, there are all sorts of vats and vineyards, and you'll go through the Holy Land, and you'll see these all over the place. Hundreds of wine presses still being found today. And the demand was high for wine at the time of Christ because the Roman legions were there. They were stationed in Israel because Rome was ruling, and Judah was Judea, a province of Rome, and each Roman soldier consumed a liter of wine per day, and a legion had 5,000 people, so they needed 5,000 liters every day, (laughs) just for the soldiers. And that kept the soldiers very happy, And, and, and not because they were drunk, because it's a very low alcohol content. It's only 4% wine, but they used it medicinally because the water was bad and had bad bacteria that would make them sick, and so they'd mix water with wine. And that would kill the bacteria and make it safe for the soldiers. And it made them a little bit happy, too. They could get a little buzz. Um, But to supply this demand, the wine was produced in a very short period, less than four weeks. They just didn't have enough time to let it ferment because they needed so much. So it's a sour wine, only 4% alcohol. So John tells us that there was a jar full of sour wine standing there, and they put a sponge on a hyssop and held it up to his mouth. And that was his last drink before his kingdom had come. Now, grapevines like sandy, loose soil. They need plenty of sunshine, and they need good air circulation. They like dew at night, and their roots can penetrate into deep crevasses, and they can grow in really rocky, rocky places. So it's great for the Holy Land. And terracing the soil helps get the vine at the right altitude, and it's just a really great way to grow grapes. They grow well this way for centuries they have grown. You'll see very old vineyards when you go there. Vineyards always had a fence or hedgerow around them, it could be stones that are made of with mud in between or branches, but that was to keep predators out. Hedges and fences to keep out things like jackals and foxes. Yes, foxes really like grapes. It's not just Aesop's fable. They really do. And it was a problem in the Holy Land. We hear about it in the Song of Solomon when he says, catch us the foxes, the little foxes that ruined the vineyards. Our vineyards are in blossom. Catch the foxes. The foxes were a problem, and the jackals and the badgers and the boars and people, marauders, would steal grapes, as well as the birds. You know the birds love grapes, so they'd have to put netting over the vines. The soil is cultivated by hoeing or spading, and that's the most labor-intensive part. And I know we have some master gardeners here, and you know the hardest part of your garden is getting the soil ready and preparing it in the spring. It's labor-intensive. And so this is a really rocky soil, so it was extra hard to get it ready for first planting. And the Holy Land has really rocky ground, so there are large stones that have to be gathered and picked up out of the ways. You see all the stones on the ground in this vineyard, and that's after they've been cleared and planted. And those stones all have lime, they're limestone. And so they have lime in them. And so when it would rain, the lime from the stone soaks into the ground and that's a natural fertilizer. The grapes like lime. And so after a good rain, they'd have to uh, rake up or hoe or spade around the the trunk of the vine again and, and work the soil again to get the lime down in there. 
Choice vines are then planted, and they're planted with great care and beautiful straight rows. Martha Stewart would be so proud. And then a watchtower was put up. A watchtower, because this is priceless. This is big box, it's the largest export, and they got to watch over the vineyard. And the husband man was called, I love that, husband man, because, in, <laughs> because God's the husband man, and we've been studying the marital imagery. So the husband man would oversee the vineyard from the watchtower, and the workers were protected, taken care of. They'd watch for marauders. They'd watch for predators. And the vineyard is guarded. And God remembers the husbandman. He watches over and protects. And these were built out of large stones with mortar and a thatched roof. And the whole family of the husbandman would live there during the harvest or during the season. It's a great vantage point to see everything that's going on in a high place. And you'll recall that God had asked Adam to be the husbandman of the first garden and to shamar and guard and protect the garden. So Jesus says, I am the true vine. My father is the husbandman. Some translations will say the vine grower, the gardener, the vine dresser. But it's God who planted Jesus, the true vine on earth. God sent him down and planted him. First, he planted him as a tree of life in the middle of the garden. Now he's planting him as a vine, a new vine, a true vine. I love that crucifix with the vine wrapped around it. The husbandman removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Jesus is the vine, God's the husbandman, and any branch that bears no fruit is being removed. Now we've seen one branch already removed. His name was Judas. He's been removed. He went out into the black of night. He's bearing no fruit for the vine. Every branch that bears fruit, the husbandman God prunes to make it bear even more fruit. So some of the fruit-bearing branches that are left are going to get severely pruned. And that's Peter. And he's going to deny Christ not once, not twice, but three times. He's going to get a real pruning. And prunings aren't always pleasant. But they're always productive. So before the arrival of a new springtime, the husbandman of the vineyard will prune every superficial branch. He knows right where to trim. Uh, I mean, this, these guys are professionals. They, they know the first bud, the secondary bud, right where to cut, right where to trim, right where to, you know, they're not, it looks like they're just hacking it up, but they're not. They know exactly what they're doing. Every branch that's sickly, weak, or feeble gets cut so that the sap from the vine can flow into the healthy ones that will bear fruit. And the true vine is that trunk at the bottom. There's one vine that's like a trunk. And Jesus says, I'm the true vine. It's a woody trunk. It's the main vine. It's the true vine. And Jesus says, I'm it. And my father is the vine dresser, the husbandman. Now, the branch that is closest to the true vine, to the trunk, is the one that bears the most grapes. Think of that. Because in this four-chapter discourse, there's one apostle that's sitting closest to the trunk, closest to the true vine. And it's the one Jesus loves. He's reclining on the bosom of Christ, and it's John. And John lives the longest of all the apostles, and he produces a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of good fruit in his lifetime, like the book we just read, John chapter 15. John is right up against the trunk. All of the apostles, all of the apostles, other than Judas, produced a lot, a lot, a lot of good fruit for the kingdom of God. Every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. So Judas's grapes are not good fruit. 
That was part one of the Gospel of John, chapter 15, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible studies, visit seekingtruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.